If you've got your Bibles, I hope that you do, open them up to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there is a hardback black Bible under the chair in front of you. If you're using one of those, we're going to be on page 862. Last week, we were working through the first half of Luke chapter 6, and, and as we did, we got to see how Jesus constantly took time to pray. As he was facing opposition in his ministry, as he prepared to make major decisions for his ministry, Jesus was a man who took time to go to the Father in prayer. And then we saw Jesus select 12 of his disciples to serve as his apostles, his messengers. And as we looked at who those 12 men were, what we saw is that they were just ordinary men like you and me, that God had called apart to serve him. And then after that, we looked at the beginning of Jesus' sermon on the plain, where Jesus used four beatitudes and four woes to help us see that as we follow Christ, we want to keep our eyes fixed, not on the things of this world, but on the things of eternity. That's what we saw. And as we looked at all of that together, what we were seeing, what Luke was showing us is that in, in Jesus' actions, in his teaching, he, he was showing us that the Christian life requires a Christian perspective. Sometimes life goes sideways. Sometimes when that happens, we can get out of alignment and we need to recalibrate our perspective so that we have the same perspective that Christ has. That's what we saw last week. But this morning, as we continue in Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, we're going to see that it's not enough to just have the right perspective. We need to live that out. When we have an encounter with Jesus, he changes our heart. And when he changes our heart, that should change how we live. That's what we're going to see as we look at the text today. So continue with me in Luke chapter 6. We're going to start at verse 27. We're going to take it to verse 42. The Bible says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those who, from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, 
Let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. This is the word of the Lord. Can we pray? Father, as we look to this text, I ask that you would help us to see what it is that Jesus is teaching us here. That we would see that it's not enough to just know what Jesus teaches. We have to live that out. Would you help us to see that, take hold of that, internalize that, and then go out of here better prepared, better equipped to live on mission for you, where we love others, where we share the gospel, where we extend grace. Would you help us to be disciples who are like our teacher, Jesus? Be at work in us today as we examine your word together. It's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen. Well, it's Memorial Day weekend. And on Memorial Day weekend, if you're a history nerd like me, you think back to some of the great moments in American military history. And one of those moments began on December 7th, 1941. That morning, it was a Sunday morning, the Japanese Imperial Navy launched an attack on the U.S. Pacific Fleet at anchor in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. Their objective was pretty straightforward. Their objective was to destroy the entire fleet and prevent the United States from entering the war. And while the Japanese did strike a significant blow to the U.S. Navy, sinking or damaging all eight battleships present, as well as three cruisers, three destroyers, two other ships, and then destroying more than 180 aircraft, their objective was not achieved. The United States entered the war the very next day on December 8, 1941. But with the loss of those battleships, um, it, it forced the U.S. Navy to change its warfighting doctrine. The aircraft carrier had to replace the battleship as the Navy's principal offensive weapon. And with that change, the need to rapidly produce aircraft carriers grew. At the beginning of World War II, the United States Navy had seven fleet carriers. And a fleet carrier took more than 18 months to produce. But naval engineers, they, they developed a, a shortcut to help fill the gap as they worked to build more fleet carriers. And that shortcut came to be known as the escort carrier. Escort carriers were smaller than fleet carriers, but they were fast to produce because they were built from already existing merchant ships. Cargo ships and tankers were transformed in a matter of two to three months into capable warships, where once these ships had served in a support capacity, where they, they were transformed into effective offensive weapons. In fact, they were so effective that by the end of World War II, the United States Navy had commissioned 86 of them. Merchant ships were transformed into aircraft carriers. And when that transformation happened, everything about those ships changed. Their role, their purpose, their mission, how they operated in, on a day-to-day -day basis, all of that changed. And if you think about it, the same thing is true for disciples of Jesus. When you have an encounter with Jesus, he transforms your heart. And when he transforms your heart... Everything about your life should change as well. That's the main idea that Jesus is teaching us here in the middle of this sermon on the plane. A transformed heart will result in a transformed life. The two are inseparably connected. When Jesus changes your heart, he changes how you live. 
You don't have an encounter with Jesus and stay the same. Your life changes, and that's the point that Jesus is making here in these verses. A transformed heart will result in a transformed life. That's our main idea that I'd like you to walk away with today. If you hear nothing else, hear that. Now, as we look at this together, I'd like you to notice that when Jesus calls us to follow him, he calls us to live differently. And that different, transformed kind of life begins with love. But it's not the kind of love that you'd expect. No, it's a radical kind of love. Take a look at what he says there at the beginning of verse 27. Jesus says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Now, it's no surprise that, that as Christians, we're called to love others. But our, our enemies? Really? That, that's who he's calling us to love? That's not what we'd expect. But that's the command he gives us here. Love your enemies. Jesus is calling us to love the very people that everything in our being is telling us we should hate. This love that we're being called into here, it's anything but ordinary. This is hard. This is countercultural, but it's the kind of love that's appropriate for someone who has experienced God's love. It's the kind of love that, that you would find appropriate for someone who has experienced God's forgiveness. Because the truth of the matter is, this is how God has loved us. Over in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, Paul tells us that all of this. He tells us that while we were enemies, not, not neutrals trapped between warring parties, not victims of circumstance in the wrong place at the wrong time, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Now, I know we don't like to think of ourselves that way, but that's who we were before Christ. We weren't just good people who made bad decisions every now and then. We were rebels and traitors. We were sinners deserving wrath. We were enemies of God. That's who we were. But, Paul tells us in Romans 5, God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners... In the moment where we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. That's how God has loved us. And so it makes sense that as God transforms our hearts, he'd call us to reflect that love. As Jesus begins this portion of his sermon, he's calling you to love your enemies. And as he continues, he does two things at once. And I absolutely love this. Because... I don't, know, I don't know about you, maybe it's just me. When, when I see a command as radical as this, a command to love my enemies, when I see Jesus tell me that, my, my sinful heart starts asking questions. My sinful heart starts asking questions like, well, well, who's my enemy? As if there's this like weird middle ground where you're not family, but you're not my enemy, and so I don't have to pay any attention to you. Right? Like, so I'll ask questions like that. Who's my enemy? But I'll also ask questions like, well, well, how exactly am I supposed to love my enemy? And what I love about what Jesus does here is, is he answers both of those questions right here at the same time. Take a look, starting there in the second half of verse 27. Jesus says, love your enemies. And then he starts to flesh that out. He says, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. 
So the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Do you see how Jesus is answering both of those questions right there? When my heart starts asking the question of, well, who qualifies as my enemy? Jesus answers, your enemy are those people who hate you. Those people who curse you, who talk bad about you and disparage you. Your enemies are the ones who abuse you. Your enemy is the guy who blatantly and publicly disrespects you. The one who takes advantage of you. The beggar who makes you feel guilty for what you've earned on your own. And the one who steals your hard-earned money. Jesus gives all these examples of different enemies to help us see that the word enemy here is all-encompassing. And so the answer to who qualifies as my enemy when it's talking about what Jesus is commanding us to to do here, the answer is everyone I'm not naturally inclined to love. That's who I love. My enemy is everyone I'm not naturally inclined to love. Now, I like to write in my Bible, and, and because I like to write in my Bible, I have underlined each one of those descriptions that Jesus gives in those couple of verses. And, and over in the margin, I've got a note to myself, and it, it just says, these are my enemies. I made that note to myself to remind me who my enemies are because I need to remember that when it comes to the people I'm called to love, my enemy is everyone I don't want to love on my own. I need to be reminded of that. We're called into this radical love. But the second question that my my heart likes to ask when it's seeking to find the limitations on how far this command goes, that, that question is how exactly do I love them? Jesus answers that question right here too. So what Jesus does is he uses this hyperbolic language to help us see that the love we're called into is a radical love. It's it's expressed in ways that are so much different from the way the world has us love. Look at this one more time, starting there in the second half of verse 27. He says, do good to those who hate you. When people treat you with disrespect, when they treat you with hatred, you don't hate them back. You show them kindness and grace. You do good to them. When people curse you, when they disparage you, you bless them. When people abuse you, you pray for them. In in my life as a Christian, one thing I have learned to be true is that it's really hard to hate somebody that I'm constantly praying for. I mean that. Like, if there's somebody that you just can't stand, somebody that's hurt you, somebody that's, that's done something wrong to you, and, and you find yourself with this growing animosity, this growing dislike, this, this growing hatred for that person, one of the best things that you can do to fight that hatred and live in this command that Jesus is giving us is to pray for them. Like, ask God to bless them. Ask God to work in and through them. Because when you're praying for somebody all the time, what starts to happen is you remind yourself that that person who you want to hate needs Jesus just as much as you do. So one of the best things we can do to fight this hatred and to love our enemies is to pray for them. That's what we're seeing right here. 
But as this list keeps on going, there, there's a shift, and, and all of a sudden, what Jesus calls us into, it actually gets harder. The first three ways that Jesus calls us to love our enemies, they, they might be countercultural or counterintuitive. You know, he, he tells us, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. But that all seems reasonable, right? As we keep going into verse 29 and verse 30, this love we're called to demonstrate, it gets more radical. Take a look at verse 29. Jesus says, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Now, at first glance, this, this might sound like Jesus is saying, hey, if somebody cold clocks you in the jaw, you're just supposed to stand there and keep taking it. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. What, what he's talking about is more like the backhand across the face. It, it was the ultimate sign of disrespect in his day. And if we understand that, we can really identify with this command right here. Because as a society, we highly value respect, and we're sensitive to the slightest disrespect. As a society, we are easily offended. We're easily insulted. But what Jesus is telling us here is that when those insults come, when that disrespect comes, love excludes revenge. You hear me on that? It's not even an option for us. Instead, we offer the opportunity for additional disrespect by continuing to love that person. When insulted and disrespected, instead of becoming hard-hearted, calloused, and closed off, we continue to be vulnerable and open. We continue to love in spite of the risk of additional insult. I'm telling you, this kind of love is radical. And the examples that Jesus gives there in the second half of verse 29 and then in verse 30 takes that emotional response and reminds us that we do the same thing with our physical property. Take a look. Jesus says, And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. If somebody tries to steal your coat, Jesus is saying, the, the response of love is not to be closed off and defensive. No, you continue to love that person. You let them have your shirt as well. That's what he's saying. If someone begs from you, even if they don't deserve it, you give. If someone steals your property, you let it go. That's how we love. But even as I say that, like, I find myself a little bit repulsed, right? Like, this is radical. Our natural inclination is not to love like this, but this is how we love. Personal affronts like theft and attacks should be met with open-heartedness and even generosity because we know that generosity is a fundamental, concrete expression of love. This really is radical. And without minimizing how radical in nature this love that Jesus is calling us to express is, I do want to point out that, that I said a moment ago that Jesus is using hyperbolic language here. And I feel like we need to talk about that for a minute because we're going to see this more as we see Jesus teach. There are times where Jesus uses hyperbole as he teaches. He uses extreme examples to make a point. Later, Jesus is going to say, if you will come after me, anyone who wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, 
and follow me. Now, when Jesus says that, he's not saying that you literally have to be nailed to a cross, that you literally need to be crucified in order to be his disciple. That's not what he's doing. It's hyperbole. He's using an extreme example to make the point that to be a follower of Jesus, everything else has to take second place. You have to die to self and put Jesus first in everything. It's hyperbole. And Jesus is using hyperbole here too. He's making an extreme example to make a point. He's giving us extreme examples to emphasize the reality that the kind of love we're called to express is radically different than the kind of love we see in the world. These commands aren't meant to be obeyed completely literally. In fact, as you look at at just a couple of them, you can fairly quickly come up with some obvious examples where where if you were to to obey these commands completely literally, it, it would be absurd or even displeasing to God. Like, like for example, Jesus isn't saying that a spouse or a child should endure physical abuse in the name of turning the other cheek, right? And and giving a drug addict money because he's begging for it and we're commanded to give to the one who begs, giving a drug addict money so that they can go and buy more drugs, further enslaving themselves to their addiction, that would not be an expression of Christ-like love for that individual, would it? Right? These commands aren't meant to be taken to the extreme. This is hyperbole, but that doesn't make the love we're called to express any less radical. We're called to show a radical love that puts the other above ourselves in all things. Which is why Jesus' instructions, all of them about loving your enemy, can be summed up in the golden rule he gives us there in verse 31. Jesus says, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. How do you love your enemies? You treat them like you want others to treat you. You love them like you want others to love you. When you have an encounter with Jesus and he transforms your heart, it's going to lead you to love your enemies. But that love isn't forced. That love is the overflow of the love you've received from God. And when you love like that, you're going to stand out from the crowd. You're going to be different from everybody else around you because you're going to look like your heavenly father. Keep reading there in verse 32. Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. You see what Jesus is telling us here? He's telling us that love isn't unique to his disciples. Lots of people love sinners, people with no relationship to God, people who are not followers of Jesus. They know how to love other people too. Like we don't have a monopoly on the market of love as Christians. But their love is always directed inward. They love those who love them. They give to those 
who are going to give to them. They do good to those who do good to them. They lend expecting repayment and interest. But that's not why we love. We love from the overflow of the love we've received from God. Because when we do, we're able to show this world what God's love is like. We become like this walking preview of the love of God. When we love others, people get a chance to see what it's like, how their father loves them and draws them in when we repent of our sin and we place our faith in Christ. We get to model God's love to a world that needs to experience that love. That's why we love. You see, we're not called to just be good people. Like this idea in America where you just... The good Christian behaves this way and does these things and votes for these people. That's not what we're called to. We're called to model the love of God to a world that needs God's love. And that's what Jesus is saying here as he continues, beginning at verse 35. Take a look. Jesus says, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be called sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Now, I need to pause for for just a moment and and note that Jesus isn't saying that you earn your your place as children of God by lending and doing good and and all of these things he's calling us to do right here. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that when you love, When you do good to others, when you lend expecting nothing in return, you demonstrate that you are a child of God because you're loving like he loves. You're like him. Now, if you you have kids, you, you totally understand this. You've seen this with your kids. As your kids grow, they tend to pick up your habits and behaviors, whether you want them to or not, right? I I can't tell you how many times I've, I've heard he's just like his dad. She's just like her mom. Like as we grow, as our kids are raised up, they tend to to exhibit the behaviors and the personality types of their parents. And what Jesus is telling us here is that you should demonstrate the personality and behaviors of your heavenly father. That's what he's telling us right here. So this life we're living where we love our enemies, where we do good to those who curse us, where we show mercy and grace, even when it's undeserved, it's meant to be a reflection of a father who's done the same for us. It's a reflection of a father who is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Which is why Jesus sums up this entire section there in verse 36 with a statement that forms the very heart of his sermon. This this is the reason, verse 36, this is the reason why we love our enemies. Take a look. He says, be merciful even as your father is merciful. We love our enemies because when we were enemies, God loved us. That's why we love our enemies. As followers of Jesus who have had our hearts transformed, that transformation leads us to look like our heavenly Father, where we show mercy even when it's undeserved. And this mercy that we extend, I want you to recognize it's not limited to just our enemies. 
we extend this mercy in how we disciple other people and how we evangelize other people as well. And that's what we'll see as we finish out this section of Jesus' sermon. Take a look, beginning at verse 37, Jesus says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Now, because of the way these verses have been misinterpreted and misapplied, especially in our current cultural moment, like you recognize this verse and its counterpart over in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 are, are better known by many Christian or many non-Christians than John 3.16. Judge not, lest you be judged, right? We've, we've all heard non-Christians say that to us, right? So before we talk about what Jesus is telling us, I think it'd be helpful to hear what he's not telling us. When Jesus says, judge not, when he says, condemn not, he's not telling us that we never judge between right and wrong. He's not telling us that we can't call sin, sin. He's not telling us that we shouldn't have discernment. And he's certainly not telling us that when we see someone trapped in their sin, we shouldn't step in and help. In fact, the parable that Jesus is going to use in just a moment tells us that there is a time and a place to rightly judge whether something is good or bad, whether something is sinful or God-glorifying. There is a time and a place where, as Christians, we should step in and help a brother or sister who is trapped in their sin. But that's not what this is talking about here when Jesus says, judge not, condemn not. What Jesus is forbidding here is a pharisaical attitude. What he's condemning here is a judgmental spirit. What this is talking about here is that as disciples of Jesus who have experienced God's mercy, we of all people should extend that mercy to others. And we know that because the command from verse 36, be merciful even as your father is merciful, is the foundation on which these commands have been laid. Verse 36 gives us the lens through which we interpret verse 37. Just as God has shown mercy to us, so we're commanded to show mercy to others. And we show that mercy by living with a spirit of grace and forgiveness. Jesus is calling us to fight the temptation to become like the Pharisees. Because you see, there's, there's this very real and dangerous temptation that we face as Christians. The longer you're a Christian, the more you learn what it is that good Christians do and don't do. And, and without even noticing, all of a sudden those do's and don't do's become this list of rules that we have to obey. And when we see somebody else breaking those rules, we judge them, we condemn them, we push them down and weigh them down with guilt. And we completely forget how desperate we were for God's mercy in our lives. The danger we face is that the longer you've lived in the grace and mercy of God, the easier it is to forget how desperate you were for that grace and mercy. And so instead of extending grace, we extend guilt. Instead of extending mercy, we condemn, but that's not what God has done for us. So what Jesus is telling us here is that when we've experienced that transformed heart, it transforms our lives and we give grace, not guilt. As children of God, we emulate our Father. We give grace, we extend mercy. That's what Jesus is telling us here. 
We extend grace and forgiveness, and we give generously. Keep reading there in verse 38. Jesus says, give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Jesus is telling us that the heavenly reward we will receive will be in proportion to how generous we were here on earth. And I love the imagery that Jesus is using here. Uh, the picture itself comes from measuring out grain. But if you've ever made a batch of chocolate chip cookies, you understand what he's saying right here. Right? Because if you've ever made a batch of chocolate chip cookies, when it comes time to measure out the brown sugar, how do you do it? You don't just take your scoop into the brown sugar and level it off with a knife like you do the flour and dump it into your mixing bowl, do you? No, you, you take that scoop and you, like, full arm strength, ram it into that, you get that full of that, that brown sugar, and then you pack that brown sugar in, and then you add more brown sugar, and you pack it in really tight until you've got, like, this brick of sweet deliciousness, and you dump that into your batch, Right? that's how we're supposed to give. Like we pack it in there. We pack in that generosity. And for the record, I absolutely think that Jesus' instruction here to give generously, it's talking about material giving, yes, but I think even more so, it's talking about the mercy we give and the forgiveness we extend. I think there are a lot of people who claim the name of Jesus Christ who need to hear this. We of all people should be the most generous with our mercy. We of all people should be the most generous with our forgiveness because God has been generous to us. And I think that becomes clear as we look at the parable that Jesus uses to cement the point. So take a look, beginning at verse 39. The Bible says, He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. The point of this parable is pretty straightforward and it actually sums up the whole passage we're looking at today. There's no room for pride or arrogance, or self-righteousness in the kingdom of God. If you are a Christian, you don't get to be proud. You don't get to be arrogant. You don't get to look down on that person who's trapped in their sin. There's no room for that. Because we all, at one point or another, have been trapped in that sin. If you walk around with pride or arrogance or self-righteousness, seeing everyone else's sin, but unwilling to deal with your own, your heart hasn't been transformed. Because a transformed heart will lead you into a transformed life. You're a blind man trying to lead other blind men. You can't lead them to what they need because you haven't experienced it yourself. 
So first, you've got to take that pride and arrogance and self-righteousness and nail it to the cross. Put it to death. Receive the free grace that Jesus offers. And then let that grace and mercy transform your life and your heart. When you do, when you have that life that's transformed, then you'll be like one of the one who is transforming you. You'll be the student who's actually like his teacher. You'll extend grace and mercy yourself. You'll love your enemies. You'll look like your heavenly father. You'll give grace, not guilt. You'll be ready then to help your brother or sister who's trapped in their sin. That's the point of this parable that closes out our text today. A transformed heart will result in a transformed life. On December 7th, 1941, there were a lot of ships whose role and function was to move cargo. They had no weapons, no armor. They were merchantmen, not combatants. But by October 25th, 1944, just three years later, in a battle off Samar, in the Battle of Leyte Gulf, six of those ships, transformed into escort carriers, along with three destroyers and four destroyer escorts, repelled an exponentially more powerful fleet of Japanese warships, made up of four battleships, six heavy cruisers, two light cruisers, and 11 destroyers. When the battle was over, the Japanese Navy as a whole had been rendered ineffective for the rest of the war. Ships designed and built to move cargo were transformed into effective fighting machines. And once that transformation was complete, everything about them changed. And if you're a Christian today, then everything about you should have changed as well. It's not enough to just know what Jesus teaches. We have to live it out in our lives. When Jesus transforms your heart, he transforms your life. And that's what we're seeing today. A transformed heart will result in a transformed life. So if we know that, and we've been transformed, all that's left for us to do is go out there and live that life out. Let's get out there and love our enemies. Love those who attack us. Love those who talk bad about us. Let's be the most loving people they've met. Man, those Christians over at Alberta Church are a bunch of bigots, but they love well. Like, like do, you, do you hear the contradiction in what they're saying? Let's be people who live this out, who love our enemies, who do good to those who do bad to us. Let's look like our Heavenly Father. And let's give grace, not guilt. You can't guilt somebody into eternity. You can't guilt somebody into heaven. You can just lead them to the foot of the cross where Jesus offers them the same mercy and grace that he offered to us, which is why we offer it to them as well. A transformed heart will result in a transformed life. So let's live that life out. Can we pray?
Father, we thank you for this word of encouragement that we have found here in the middle of chapter 6. Father, we confess that there are times where, where we haven't done very well with this. There are times where we have not loved our enemies. There have been times where we haven't looked anything like our Heavenly Father. There have been times where we have been quick to condemn and weigh on extra guilt to others. Father, would you help us to live differently? Would you transform our lives from one degree of glory to the next where we look more like Jesus every single day? Would you help us when we don't want to, especially when we don't want to, would you help us to love our enemies? Would you help us to be more like our Heavenly Father where we show His love, we show His grace, we show His mercy to a world that needs love and grace and mercy? Father, would you help us to lead people to know and love you? Would you help us to correct fellow believers who are stumbling in their sin with a spirit of grace, not guilt? Would you help us to be a people who live on mission for you in everything we do so that in everything we do, Christ is magnified? We love you, Lord. It's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.